You are listening to Hungry Books, a podcast about the best books ever written on the subject of food. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook and author. And each episode, I present a book that will change your life. Hungry Books Today, I'll be dissecting a book that explores the ways in which we have historically transformed our food and how this process has also transformed us. For thousands of years, we have gone way beyond the biological need to sustain our bodies. We created rituals, rules, and even philosophies around food by linking many aspects of our lives to our dependence to food. You see, sourcing ingredients and preparing them together gave us the perfect opportunity to socialize, plan, bond, share and shape our bodies, brains, behavior and technology. Cooking, as many historians and anthropologists say, made us human. So today's episode is about a book that offers a deep exploration into our social and cultural evolution around course, food, and how increasingly detached and unfamiliar we have become with even the most basic ways of feeding ourselves. The book is called Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation, and was written by the acclaimed journalist, speaker, and researcher Michael Pollan, whose insatiable curiosity started in the most innocuous of places, the kitchen. And from there, he's been following the evolution of cooking and the fruit production chain, unveiling some of the most complex truths about why we eat the way we do and the implications that brings to our lives. On this episode's description, you will find the links to get this book, and I even added a couple of Michael Pollan's talks that you can watch for free. And now, on with the show. Across every culture in the world, every society has at the core of its organization a system that secures their sources of food. And historically, we have eaten what is close to us and when we were able to source in our vicinity. But the more advanced our systems became, the more able we were to preserve, transform and source foods from the most remote parts of the planet. In a recent interview, Michael Pollan pointed out that our most profound engagement with the natural world happens on our plates. But food also links us to other people, to those who feed us, who farm, who rear animals, who process ingredients and carry our foods. But as I said earlier, as our society has become increasingly complex, we have specialized in single activities, and our relationship with the places, people, and primary sources of food have weakened to the point that a person can live his or her entire life without ever having had to butcher, farm, or cook any ingredient to make food. 
Because this book comes from a place of concern and curiosity, and more importantly, not from an academic desk, but from the inquisitive scrapbook of a journalist, it leases through a series of questions that get to the root of why our food has become increasingly poorer and our nutrition has dramatically declined. Perhaps some of you have seen the adaptation of this book in the Netflix documentary that features some of the places, practices and people that Michael Pollan interviewed, visited and researched in the making of this book. And if you haven't seen it, Cooked is totally worth watching. But if you do so, I really suggest you still read the book. Because like with any printed work, you can take the time to pause and think. And of course, the narrative is richer and I guess even more poignant. So before we dive straight into the book, let me tell you a little more about Michael Pollan. Although he's a familiar face and a household name in the food writing world, Pollan is actually a journalist, so he's not a cook or a chef. So he was a columnist for the New York Times magazine for a number of years and contributed to numerous publications from National Geographic, Harper's Magazine, Travel and Leisure, Gourmet, among many others. Pollan's work somehow became increasingly focused in doing extensive research on many related subjects that went from health to agriculture and food. And because of this really groundbreaking work and the approach that he has to it, he's been the recipient of numerous awards. Poland spends most of his time writing, working as a lecturer of journalism in Harvard and has a very busy schedule as a public speaker. So I will put a link to Poland's website on this episode's notes if you want to catch him on the road. Cooked, a natural history of transformation is a book organized in four sections and each of them explores the main forms of transformation of cooking and preserving food and they also imply the use of different types of tools and technology that humanity has developed and mastered over thousands of years. So the four sections that comprise this book are fire, water, air and earth. So we find that the impact that the development and use of these cooking techniques has had in our bodies, in our psyche, and even our social structure has radically shaped our species. Now, for decades, anthropologists have studied the relationship between a better nutrition provided by cooked food and the development of the cerebral cortex in proto-humans. And this event occurred about 1.8 million years ago. And I'm sure you might have heard over the years mentions about this. Now, this is a transcendent evolutionary feature that resulted in the evolution of our species, the Homo sapiens. So we can say that cooking indeed made us human. Let's have a closer look at the first part of the book, that is fire. The domestication of fire is one of the most transcendent events in human history. Yet, as Poland and food historians argue, the use of fire to transform ingredients into edible foods is primarily the consequence of a happy accident rather than the deliberate action to create fire. But eventually, of course, it was found to be a particularly useful tool when controlled by humans. 
Cooking food with fire not only gave our primitive ancestors a much better flavor experience, but it also had a radical impact in our lives or their lives. So first, it freed their bodies from spending a huge amount of energy, I mean, hours and hours of their day, chewing and digesting raw meat. And that also enabled them to eat foods that were otherwise inedible and even poisonous if eaten raw. For example, vegetables like cassava tubers or potatoes, which is perfectly safe to eat one, but if you eat loads of them, you might get poisoned. So having to spend less time chewing and digesting also meant there were other physical transformations. For example, the humongous jaws and teeth that our ancestors had were not needed anymore, at least not in that size. So over thousands of years, they shrunk. And some of the other changes and impacts they had in cultural terms was that cooking with fire, preparing the ingredients and waiting around it to be ready gave these early humans the occasion to gather around it, share the preparation, share the anticipation, and of course, the food itself. So this triggered the development of very key social abilities that came up as a result of all these dynamics. So one was the need to cooperate and the other to share. Now, why are these two so important? Cooperate means that they had to exercise some self-restraint and also to develop feelings of generosity. Sharing a bigger portion with someone else they loved or feeding first the children or the elderly and so on. And cooperating meant that they had to develop strategies, tolerate each other and learn to work as teams. All of these things became deeply imprinted in our DNA is also linked to another aspect of our species, one that we have chosen to be as far away as possible, and that is hunting and killing for survival. Because much as we would like to think of ourselves as sophisticated creatures elevated high above in the food chain, it actually makes no difference whether we personally kill a cow, a chicken or a fish. A sanitized vacuum package is still evidence that someone else did it for us. There is a particularly poignant question that Poland throws to the reader, and this one is about why we have become so mesmerized by watching other people cook, and the abundance of TV shows that cater for this particular interest. From cooking competitions to travel and cooking, seasonal food and types of cuisine, you name it. Poland even teases the reader by remarking how odd it is that we only obsess about watching other people cook and not by watching people make shoes, eat food, build houses or tidy up. Well, at this point, I know you are thinking exactly what I'm thinking, because all of those activities are among the many things we actually do obsess about these days. So probably the joke is on everyone. <laughs> Let's see. The first edition of this book was published in 2013, 
And that was way before the days of apartment therapy, Marie Kondo, and tutorials for everything. So in hindsight, I guess, the fact that we became mesmerized with watching people cook, I think it says more about the way we are ingrained to learn and interact with other people, and the pleasure and other comforting feelings that we get from it. So I think that the fact that we don't even harbour any intention to actually cook any of the foods we are watching is ultimately irrelevant because it's about projecting our desire to observe other humans, create and transform the world around us with the same joy that we do in the early years of our infancy. And there's of course an arguably deeper emotional connection to food and watching someone cook for the purpose to feed us. But in defense of the observer, I would say that watching cooking shows is not necessarily just a passive exercise. It can expand our knowledge, inspire us, and maybe it does fill a void in our lives. So I could go on and on. Of course, you will have to read the book to continue with your own lines of thoughts and contrast it with your own life at this moment. The second section of the book is dedicated to water. Now, it might sound simple enough, but actually the use of water for cooking required, first of all, the mastering of fire. Then the development of tools and utensils to contain this water and use it to boil, steam, poach and score, which occurred about 10,000 years ago. It's roughly around the time that the development of agriculture occurred. Now, now through history and civilizations, we find something really fascinating, that time and time again, there are patterns that are repeated regardless of the cultural influence of one society to another. And even if we are separated by space, these things took place almost simultaneously. So one of these events was the so-called agricultural revolution of the Neolithic period that created this simultaneous frenzy around the world for the domestication of cereals and other foods that gave way to abandon a nomadic life and become sedentary. And just as a historical footnote, let me tell you that the founder crops of the agricultural revolution were rice, millet, sorghum, corn, wheat, barley, and pulses in general. So now let's have a closer look because there's something really interesting here. Link to the passage from a nomadic to a sedentary life and a new social organization, we find that throughout the ancient world, from Mesopotamia to ancient Greece, a new social character came to exist that was intimately connected with the practical and the spiritual aspects of food. So this figure was a sort of a priest or a spiritual leader who also happened to be a butcher and a cook. And this one single person fulfilled the whole ritualistic aspects of providing with the symbolic and physical nourishments by means of sacrifice and magic or technology that is cooking and was distributed among those who were deserving of it. Now, I really find this very curious because it does touch on that symbolic presence of sacred foods that are at the center of rituals of communion across systems of beliefs. 
Poland closes this chapter by arguing that is precisely at this point of the mastering of fire and the use of water that cuisines began evolving. Because unlike roasting meat on an open fire, the gentle way of cooking with water in pots and being able to transform plants that had textures, flavors, aromas, just that, gave way to a more creative and, I guess, a process-driven way of cooking. Which obviously makes perfect sense, because if you think of it, you could grill a fish on a stick in any part of the world and it will still be a grilled fish. But cooking with local plants and using just certain parts of them and deciding when to stop cooking, how to combine the dishes and how to serve them is way, way more complex. Moving on, the third section of the book is dedicated to air, which Michael Pollan embodies in baking. This again implies the use of mixed technologies and an infinitely more complex food knowledge and practices than the previous two ways of cooking. Let me make a quick recap of two things that needed to happen before we ended up with a loaf of bread. With the domestication of grains, the creation of specific tools to farm and to harvest was absolutely essential. And the second component was the discovery of fermentation. It might have been in ancient Egypt where the first loaf of leavened bread was baked, and that will place us around 6,000 years ago. There are many amazing things that are involved in the invention of baked bread. First, according to recent discoveries, it is very likely that the deliberate fermentation of drinks preceded, that means appeared before, the use of natural yeast to ferment dough. In other words, people were getting drunk with beer way before they discovered that the same yeast could double the size of their doughs and their breads, improve the flavour and ease the digestion. There is, of course, a fascinating and almost magical essence of fermented dough, because it's just a humble mixture of flour and water, but is capable of harvesting and providing a safe environment for yeasts and fungi to thrive. And by using just a little bit of it to make bread and replenish it with more flour and water, you could have an eternal source of food. This never-ending miracle is something that, if you think of it, only plant-based foods can give you. Because unless you know a secret that I don't, you really can't grow a steak out of another one. But if you are clever enough, you can keep a dough started alive for literally hundreds of years. And the last section of the book is dedicated to Earth, that is, the use of microbes that live naturally on the planet and are harvested for the purpose of fermentation. This actually has caused many agitated discussions about whether fermented food can be considered as cooked food or not. Many food historians and anthropologists argue that cooking really only occurs when heat is applied to one or more ingredients with the intention to transform them into an edible food. 
But there is another school of thought that says that pickles, cheese, wine, cider, vinegar, and appraise yourselves, coffee and chocolate are the product of a deliberate process of fermentation by using fungi or bacteria, meaning there is a deliberate act to produce an edible substance. Of course, you can decide for yourself whether you consider that food or not, but it does tell you about how food studies have evolved and changed the original categories of study and classification. While many of us will feel totally unequipped to produce such foods out of fermentation and even be squeamish at the thought of eating controlled rotting foods and drinks like your meats, alcoholic drinks, treats like chocolate and even honey. Going back to the discovery of the magic of fermentation, it is probably humans' early obsession with alcohol, like I mentioned, that only required a sugar-rich ingredient, such as fruits, tubers, or cereals, that have a high content of starches that produce the most effective and low-effort forms of food preparation. And that's what's incredibly powerful about this. Humans have been fermenting foods and drinks for thousands of years before we had any deep understanding of the most basic chemistry or biology. Unlike the self-evident use of fire, which you see the naked flame actually cooking and transforming the meat in front of you, fermentation must have remained as a great mystery that fascinated and obsessed entire civilizations. So here we'd like to make another pause, because the book also dwells on the mystical attributions that mankind has given to intoxicants, and many of them are produced by fermentation. Because we find time and time again throughout history that the use of alcoholic beverages is invariably attached to a ritualistic consumption of them that normally occurs as a part of a communal activity that either enables or aids a richer spiritual and religious experience. It is very likely, then, that the fact that humans didn't understand the actual chemical process behind this transformation is what gave them the opportunity to fill it with a mystical explanation, and thus the liquids became sacred. The book also takes a very close look to the process of chocolate making, which begins with the harvesting of the cocoa pods, extracting the seeds and allowing the pulp that surrounds the seeds to ferment. Now, cocoa seeds are wrongly called beans, perhaps because of the size, but please bear in mind that it's not a legume, it's just the seed of the fruit produced by the cocoa tree. Now, this fermented pulp is washed and the seeds are dried, then toasted and grounded. The resulting paste can be flavoured and dissolved to prepare drinks, or it can be mixed with other ingredients to prepare solid foods. And this again pushes the reader to think about the ritualistic aspect that for centuries cocoa had among the Mayan, Olmec and Aztec elites and other pre-Columbian tribes for the matter. Because while today chocolate is among the most ubiquitous types of sweets in Western cultures, I think we still attach a lot of these symbolisms of pleasure, indulgence and even sensuality, guilt and sin. So it does beg the question then, how much of our cultural behaviour is really shaped by the technology we use to make food. 
Now, one of the things that Michael Pollan keeps returning to in several of his books, including this one that I'm talking about today, Cooked, and others like The Omnivore's Dilemma, In Defense of Food, and Food Rules, and Eater's Manual, is that we must reclaim our right and duty to be in charge of the food we eat, and what that ultimately means is getting our hands dirty. At the core of this book, and all throughout the chapters, there is this nagging issue of the need to re-evaluate the terms of our relationship with our food system. And how did we reach the point when we have almost entirely entrusted our health and nutrition to corporations? Now, before we turn into Marxist Orwellian trolls, let me point out that this is a complex matter that has been shaped by economic models, social dynamics, gender roles, education, income, food safety and politics. So before you start shaming yourself for your poor food choices and that pack of crisps hidden under your desk, please consider that this is ultimately a cultural and sociological problem, way bigger than you. But yes, you're still part of it. So, we might not have started the fire, but we have done a lot to perpetuate Western cultural aspirations, which the radical in me says that it is designed to benefit the production and corporate system rather than being centered around the well-being of people to whom it is supposed to serve. But let me play the devil's advocate again here and say that it is, of course, only natural that if we aspire to get an education, pursue a career, have personal goals and dedicate time to our individual and professional development, something will have to be sacrificed in the process sooner or later. I, I get that. Now, it is a common place for us, like we don't have the time or the skills to build our own houses, so we outsource the labour and we pay the cost with a monetary transaction. Same with the use of transport that comes at a cost but saves us the time and effort. And sourcing convenient foods that are ready made or partially processed is the ultimate time saver that enables us to do whatever we want with that free time. Sourcing food that others have prepared for us is really not the problem. The problem is that it is not a person, but a corporation that operates under very different objectives, in which providing us with the best nutrition possible is very likely not one of them. In Poland's words, when we let corporations cook for us, we lose control. There is an enormous leap of faith to think that they are going to have integrity in doing so. But not all is desolation and loom. Through this book, and indeed the breath of his work, Michael Pollan does call us to realize and understand that most of the health problems we experience today are closely related to the foods we consume and our habits attached to it. But we also have the power to make decisions to change that. Now let's make a recap of a few things while I give you my top five reasons why you should read this book. Number one. This work is a true rarity in which it takes you on a deep philosophical and existential soul-searching from the non-threatening comfort of your kitchen. It is an invitation to understand the value of being mindful and have intention and use information and creativity to cook for ourselves and others and reclaim the powerful bonds that sharing food gives us. 
Number two, very, very easily, Michael Pollan will convince you that it's worth getting your hands dirty experimenting with these staple cooking methods presented in the book. And more importantly, you won't have to justify making a barbecue every weekend if you state the obvious that only through fire meats and vegetables can release up to 30,000 chemical components that are as delicious as they are nutritious. This book is full of amazing facts that will leave you wondering how on earth have you lived this long without actually knowing or understanding how your own body works. For instance, did you know that our brains represent only 2% of our body weight, but they actually require 20% of our energy to power them? And only cooked food can provide us with the optimum sources of nutrients. I guess that also, in a very cheeky way, is a good argument against fruitarian and raw food diets. Number four, there is a good quote that you can actually live by. You can eat anything you want as long as you cook it yourself. Actually, it's not Michael Pollan who says it, but he cites food marketing expert Harry Blazer. But the point is that just the sheer amount of effort that you have to put into making every single type of food will push you to make much more sensible choices and decisions to optimize the energy that you can realistically put into cooking and eating. And real fact, as we speak, I am brewing now for the first time my own ginger beer. Wish me luck. I'll tell you how it goes. <laughs> and last but not least, number five, reading this book is pretty much like taking the red pill. Because once you read it, it will literally reveal aspects about yourself, our culture and our food system that will make it impossible or very, very uncomfortable to pretend that you don't know the consequences of your choices. You will be able to see through the machinery of marketing that has us convinced that we don't have the time to cook and that it is not even worth it, not when you are better off microwaving frozen lasagna. That means that you will now have the chance to make the conscious effort to fight back get in the kitchen and reclaim what made us human. So there you have it. I hope this episode has itched your curiosity to pick up this book and get ready to see food under a whole different light uh, without being sentimental because this book is anything but that. It, this uh, work really puts the finger on the fact that because we have a profound emotional relationship with food, we have used that particular connection to deceive ourselves and others into misusing and abusing cultural cues and triggers to eat certain foods. It is terrifying and I find it personally very worrying how misguided can our food knowledge be. You know, as children, we are certainly bound to only eat and get to understand what is good to eat and what is not from the adults around us. And whichever the knowledge is, is what it will be passed on to us. When we grow a little more, it's the immediate surroundings, that is our extended family, community, school, etc., that will normally reinforce these practices. And in the best of cases, it will uh, expand them a little bit. 
And finally, as adults, the conscious and unconscious choices that we make of venturing into culinary experiences that are fundamentally different from ours and enrich our knowledge and skills and acquire information, reading books, such as this wonderful work, Cooked, is what will give us more opportunities to take the pan by the handle and put ourselves in charge of some of the most important decisions that will affect our lives forever and every day. And that is... What do we choose to feed ourselves with? Thank you for listening to this episode of Hungry Books, which was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. To find the link to purchase a Kindle or a physical copy of Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation by Michael Pollan, scroll down to this episode's notes and... I have something fun to tell you. I have just added a new feature for the show and you can now click and record a voice message from your phone and you can let me know where are you tuning in from, share any suggestions for future episodes or just say hi. The link is on this episode's description. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe, rate and share it with someone special. Connect with me on Instagram, find the show as at Hungry Books Podcast, and my other account is rocio.carvajalc. And my email is hello at pasachipotle.com. To support the show and keep the episodes coming, you can make a donation via buymeacoffee.com. The link is on this episode's notes. And that's it for me today. Stay hungry. <laughs>